Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the May 14, 2023 session, focusing on Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 31, turning the world upside down. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Daniel Glaze. I'm David Adams. And I'm Crystal Shepard. Hello, everyone. I and David Adams are on location at Middlesboro for a convention for a state meeting. And so we are spread out here. He's up in, a, I think, the youth room, and I'm in a, a pastor's office. But So if we sound a little different, it's because we're not in front of our usual podcasting gear. But we are happy to be with you. And, of course, Daniel and Crystal, it's great to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, you too. I'm not often in crowds. And sometimes I find myself in a crowd at a game or a concert or some other event. So I'm wondering if perhaps any of you have had experiences where you've been in a crowd and it became frightening in some way. So I'm going to age myself just a little bit. I was I served on a creative ministries team two summers in a row here in Kentucky. But one of those summers, this was when I was in college, one of those summers was 1996, which was the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. And we got to go for a week to Atlanta. Um, and I remember being in a crowd of people very like there was you could hardly move and being so afraid this is probably the biggest crowd I've ever been in so I was so afraid of being separated from my teammates that and I was also someone like stealing stuff out of my backpack or whatever so I literally carried my backpack on front of me and one of my teammates like grabbed a hold of my shirt and I grabbed a hold of the shirt of the teammate in front of me and we went like a line weaved in and out through through the crowd but it, it was a pretty big crowd and it was pretty pretty scary. You could hardly move. So that's, yeah. and then the, ne- the next week we had gone home and the next week, another one of our teams was down there when the bombing happened. Mm, bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I want to date myself even worse than Crystal did because it was about 1978. <laughs> I went to a queen concert with my high school best friend and this was before the who tragedy. So they set us about halfway up on the floor toward the front row and we were tired of standing, so he sat down. I was still standing up because the crowd was kind of thick. And all of a sudden, they removed the barriers between us and the stage. And we heard a rumbling sound, which I pretty well knew, okay, this was the crowd. So I grabbed his shoulder and picked him up and said, start running. And we didn't have time to because it hit us like a wave and carried us to the front of the stage. I don't think my feet touched the ground the whole time. But had we stumbled and not made it there, there's no telling what might have happened to us. I was terrified all the way to the stage that this is it. We're going to be crushed. It Oof. didn't happen, but wow, that was a really terrifying crowd moment. My goodness. Mine was prob- my experience was probably only frightening to me because I was just a country boy from Arkansas who was in college. We had gone on a trip to New Orleans as part of an antebellum history tour over a J-term. And it just so happened that we were in New Orleans on Bourbon Street on St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) And there was a parade. And the things I was seeing and experiencing from the crowd during this parade scared this Arkansas country boy. (laughs) I still I can still vividly remember the emotions of culture shock from that day. (laughs) Not really fear for safety, but just fear for experiencing new things. (laughs) 
we are still in the book of Acts, and there are some crowds in this passage, aren't there, Crystal? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pass the baton to you and see if you'll get us started with this one. Okay, bear with me, folks, because it's a long one. I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I have a love-hate relationship with Paul. It might be a tolerate uh, and totally frustrated by how Paul's words are grossly misinterpreted and used by some Christians, but I put that aside for today. (laughs) Truly, I think Paul does present a challenge for me, and this passage was no exception. I started thinking about Paul in terms of Harry Potter. I had to bring Harry Potter in because I'm subbing for Bert. So for those Harry Potter fans out there, Paul reminds me of Severus Snape. He's moody. He's dark. He's a little full of himself. But in the end, you realize that he was always the person that was needed at this pivotal time and that his heart was always in the right place. Paul was just the man for the time in which he lived. He understood the Jewish faith and had intimate knowledge of the early Christian movement. He also had a firsthand encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And in addition, his status as a Roman citizen would have given him some clout and has seen in many occasions protection under the law. His journey in today's scripture is extensive, traveling somewhere around 180 miles as he traveled from city to city. The two main cities on this journey were Thessalonica and Athens. We have a couple of others in there, but these are the two that I want to focus on. In Thessalonica, he follows his pattern and connects Jesus with the idea of a suffering Messiah as his main point of debate. The Jews of the area were none too pleased, and they bring charges of insurrection against Paul, saying that he's proclaiming Jesus as a rival king to Claudius Caesar. When Paul and Silas can't be found, the crowd that they have stirred up against them brings Jason, the man who they were staying with, and his associates to the governmental leaders. Paul and Silas are ushered to the next town in the cover of night. In the next town, people were more amenable to what Paul had to share, but Thessalonica folks found out and brought the mob there. So Paul moved on. Which brings us to Athens and an alternative to Paul's MO. While waiting for Silas and Timothy here, he becomes irritated because he's seeing all these statues and idols to different gods. Paul breaks with his own tradition and not only goes to the Jews who do not give him any opposition, but he also meets with the Gentiles in the Agora or marketplace. This was a common place for people to go to hear philosophers and street preachers of sorts. He came against two schools of thought here, the Stoics and the Epicureans. And I'm going to break down their views in hopefully a brief nutshell. Stoics believed in logos or reason that created the universe and was in all of creation. Virtue was attained by living in agreement with the law of nature. The spark of logos was in all people, and at death, that divine spark would return to the world's soul. And in the afterlife was just the immortality of the soul. Epicureans, founded by Epicurus in 4th century, believed gods were not concerned with the affairs of men. When a person died, they returned to atoms, and they advocated to avoid pain rather than seeking pleasure. 
So Paul presents his argument and they called him a seed picker, which means a sparrow or someone who is worthless and picking up the scraps in the marketplace. Think about upcoming Derby in the infield, cleaning up that mess. So they were thinking Paul was pulling from different ideas. And some thought that he was advocating for foreign divinities because he was talking about Jesus and Anastasis, which is resurrection. And they thought that meant Jesus was the God consort and an Anastasius or resurrection was the goddess. So his thoughts were so interesting that they took him to meet with the city council. And it wasn't a trial, shocker, I know, for Paul. So he goes there and here comes this famous speech that we have at the end of today's passage. So Paul took their religiosity and turned it up on its head. He respectfully notes that they are super religious, but then he says that they were so religious and so politically correct, as we would call it today, that they didn't want to offend any God. So they had an idol to an unknown God. And Paul takes this opportunity to say, I'm going to tell you who that God is. This unknown God, who Paul knows as the Judeo-Christian God, is one and creator of the universe. It is God who determines men's lives and not vice versa. God created humankind to seek and find God. Paul even quotes two Stoic philosophers when he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. So he questions why do they put their trust in idols? He further that God permitted humankind to walk in their own ways, and they had not been able to find God through natural revelation. So a new way was made, and you guessed it, that new way was Jesus. A day of judgment was coming, and the people must repent. He said Jesus was the one to judge, and he was worthy to do so because of his resurrection. Now, all of this would have offended the Epicureans because they didn't believe in the afterlife, and the Stoics, because of the notion of resurrection, defeated this idea of immortality of the soul. The gospel is anything if not offensive. But I think it can be not just offensive to those who have not encountered Jesus, but especially to those of us who have. What does this mean for us sitting in the pews and walking in our daily lives? Mitzi J. Smith says this, With our limited imagination, we create God in our own image. That We create a God who can be restricted to metaphors and controlled by our imagination, and that is not God. We do this in many ways, one of which is to imagine a God who is like us and unlike those we consider other. I think the lesson we can learn is to be like those in Athens, open to differing points of view, open to respectful debate and perspectives, a willingness to think beyond absolutes of color, gender, sexual orientations, religious or political ideologies, because all of those things can be made into idols in the name of not offending or in cornering the market on being right. Instead, may we hear one another May we see the image of God in one another and live together believing that we are all indeed his offspring and that in him we live and move and have our being. Christo, I'm really taken by the direction you took with this. That's why I said taken twice. When I read the passage, the first thing that comes to my mind is not the tolerance and acceptance and the willing to hear out that was being given in Athens, but the offense taken by people who did not want to hear the Christian message from the first groups. They hear that the Christian message is something that is offensive. 
This can't be spoken. This can't be talked about. You can't live this way. And the fact that you think we should is downright offensive to the point where they would be charged with the worst crime of imaginable in the Roman Republic or, or the Roman Empire, which was disturbing the peace. And when they're brought before the magistrates, they're terrified because, oh, the Romans are going to come down on us. We're allowing this to happen in our town. These Christians are out of hand. They're out of control. They're questioning too much. I keep hoping someday Christians will be thought of that way again. But I love the beautiful image you present of what if we were the kind of people who, instead of trying to stir things up, just accepted and let people live and saw where that took us, saw the possibilities there. It's an interestingly different perspective. Yeah, I think it's because I've been, we've all been entrenched in this craziness that's been the last, I don't know, four to six years, I guess, where there's a lot of like just animosity back and forth over a bunch of different things. And it's still ongoing. And I think I just get weary of hearing that. And so when I when I read this passage, first of all, I was like, whew, my ADHD kicked in and I was like, this is long. But I forced myself not to skip ahead. And when you really read through it, you're like, oh, these people in Athens, like, they listened. And I think that we could learn a lot from listening to one another instead of yelling at, their top, at the top of our lungs because we think we're right. That's really interesting. Crystal and David Adams, I so I was not, I did not key in on that, but I keyed in on something else, which I think is going to connect. So I'll try to connect to what you were just saying. I was really taken by this. We ought not think that the deity, this is verse 29. We ought not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. But instead, we are God's offspring. And bef before that, in him, we live and move and have our being. What I take that to mean is God is not some external object that we can point to and get our minds around outside of ourselves necessarily. But we are God's offspring. In him, we live and move and have our being. It's very intrinsic to who we are, that God looks like you and me, and we look like God. And there's a lot of image of God concept here that's going on in my own mind. And where that connects to what y'all were just talking about, if God is some external, at arm's length kind of precious stone object, then that's easy for me to disregard whatever image of God might be in you. But if God is so close to me that in him I live and move and have my being, which is just an incredible phrase. We could break down for another half hour. If God is that close to me and such that part of who I am, it makes it much harder for me to disregard that divinity within you. And if we can accept that closeness of God within each of us, I have to believe that would change how we as people of faith see one another and see those outside of the faith for sure. Any of that making sense? I took a long trip to get there. Okay, I'm just working off of Crystal's image because it's, it keeps sticking in with me. The way people came to God, the way the gospel came across to people, it differed between this is hostile to who we are, this is hostile to who we are, we're going to resist it as opposed to a place where you accept people as they are, where you're expected to have differences of opinion. You might even be wrong, and you're going to admit to that and put your ideas out there in a marketplace of sorts. And 
let people talk about it and let them sink it in without some sort of conflict or threat by, oh, you might think differently from me. The gospel is able to do more. You know, that, that third bit of the story in Athens, it doesn't tell you that thousands of people were saved or anything like that. But the gospel message was gotten across and it was able to compete on a marketplace of ideas. Like it wasn't where people were being hard-headed about it and arguing and not accepting each other. There's a big part of it. I don't know if I heard you say this, Crystal, or not, but it sounded like at some point Paul had, by opening this up, had to say, you might come into this and think that I'm wrong about something. I may not be 100% correct in my understanding of the universe and how it works, what things are like here. I'm putting it out there next to your ideas. So we can talk about that. I'm telling you what I think, but I could be wrong. And I'll open myself up to that if that's what you need me to do. And I think the gospel works better with that. If we see very differently when you take that approach. Yeah, and so that that's what the offensiveness of the gospel that, that you were talking about, Crystal, means to me, David. It, what you were just saying, that the offensiveness of the gospel is not in some hellfire and damnation convicting sinners but in the, it's offensive to my notion of certainty that I've got the truth and I just need to give it to the world, but almost an offensiveness which causes humility, that, that we are offended into humility, if that's not a contradiction in terms. <laughs> that the, the offensiveness is that it really rocks my sense of I alone have the answer, but, but really causes us to, to seek that in others. So... One of the interesting characters in American Christianity is a, a leader named Clarence Jordan, who founded Koinonia Farms in Americus, Georgia. And of course, this was back in civil rights days, where there was a great deal of strife around racial issues. And most churches were strictly segregated. And it was no different in Americus where Clarence and five other Koinonian community members attended the Rehoboth Baptist Church in Americus, Rehoboth, excuse me, where they attended the Rehoboth Baptist Church of Americus. According to accounts of that experience, Clarence Jordan and the other persons from Koinonia were excommunicated from this Baptist church, a thing I didn't know was a thing. but. It, it happened that as part of that, Clarence Jordan was called to an emergency Sunday afternoon meeting of the church's board of deacons after one of Koinonia's members had brought an Asian American, a Hindu, and a non-white to a worship service. To the leaders of this church, inviting a non-white church was apparently an excommunicable offense in the same category as murder, rape and apostasy. Standing before the seven elders of the church, Clarence Jordan decided to use, as part of his defense against being driven out of his church, a theological approach. So Jordan, knowing his New Testament by heart and knowing that his colleagues had done nothing wrong, asked the deacons to find in the Bible the offense that they were guilty of. Of course, they looked through the Bible and turned the pages and nervously tried to find something. And finally, it became obvious they, they weren't going to find anything in the Bible to condemn them with. One of the deacons slammed his Bible shut and said, Clarence, and I'm paraphrasing here, <laughs> Clarence, we don't care what it says in the Bible. We just don't want none of these people in the church. 
Later, one of the deacons apologized to Clarence about the excommunication. And Jordan told him, he said this, he said, I want you to go back up there and live so as to get kicked out. Jordan talked about it later, that how that deacon he talked to became a model for, quote, being a divine irritant and a fellow disturber of the peace. There's certainly many ways for us to be irritants and to cause opposition. Many of those have nothing to do with being Christian. But it does seem that following the ways of Christ and loving others unconditionally does make us divine irritants. May we all find ways to live out the gospel in ways that disturb the peace. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.